0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. For the December 30th 2018 RCL, Dan offers his annual Favorite Films of the Year. This is a fun time of year for me. In the essays for the next two weeks, I reflect on the films and books that I reviewed for Journey with Jesus in this past year and identify my favorites. Of course, there is no accounting for personal taste, but here are my top picks for 2018. In his book, Sculpting in Time, the Russian filmmaker Andrei Tarkovsky says that the allotted function of art is not, as is often assumed, to put across ideas, to propagate thoughts, to serve as an example. The aim of art is to prepare a person for death, to plow and harrow his soul, rendering it capable of turning to good. These five films plowed my soul, and I pray, rendered it capable of turning to good. And don't forget, you can search JWJ's nearly 800 film reviews from 106 countries by title or by country. Just use the drop-down menu under Film at the top of any page. Chasing Train, the John Coltrane documentary. This 90-minute documentary about the jazz saxophonist John Coltrane tells the inspirational story of one of the greatest musical geniuses of his generation, Coltrane's story begins in Hamlet, North Carolina, where both of his grandfathers were pastors. That historically racist context and deeply spiritual family combined to find expression in Coltrane's jazz, which was nothing more, nothing less than a musical medium in search of what is eternally good, true, and beautiful. One of the special treats of this movie is how it explores Coltrane's pronounced spirituality. To take just one example, from the cover of his famous album, A Love Supreme, Coltrane wrote... May we never forget that in the sunshine of our lives, through the storm and after the rain, it is all with God, in always and forever. All praise to God. Coltrane's story is told by the memories and reflections of many people against a background soundtrack of his music, family, friends, bandmates, and music critics. My favorites were Carlos Santana, the Princeton philosopher Cornell West, Wynton Marsalis, Bill Clinton, and John Densmore, the drummer for The Doors. Coltrane died all too soon at the age of 40 from liver cancer. First Reformed The Protestant pastor Ernst Toller, played by Ethan Hawke, is keeping a journal of his dark thoughts, much like the young priest in the novel Diary of a Country Priest by Bernanos. As the movie unfolds and a voiceover reads the journal entries back to us, you understand why. This is a minister in the midst of a spiritual crisis for many good reasons. Those who are familiar with the personal background of the director, Paul Schrader, of Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, and The Last Temptation of Christ, will view this movie as deeply autobiographical. In a panel discussion after screening a First Reformed, Schrader admitted that he keeps returning to versions of his most famous character, the estranged outsider Travis Bickle, in the 1976 classic Taxi Driver. And the Toller is another iteration of Bickle, who once confessed loneliness as a loud night. Has followed me my whole life, everywhere, in bars, in cars, sidewalks, doors, everywhere. There's no escape. I'm God's lonely man. This is Schrader's 12th film, and many critics are praising it as a culmination of his remarkable 40 year career. Human Flow. In July of 2015, after four years of house arrest in his native China, the dissident artist Ai Weiwei finally got his passport back. He immediately moved to Berlin as a refugee in exile. He thus brings his personal experience to the signature crisis of our age, namely the 65 million refugees all around the world who have been forcibly removed from their homes. This documentary film is an excellent example of how sometimes images are far more powerful than words. There is very little narration, except for the intermittent facts, figures, and interviews with experts from places like Human Rights Watch and the UNHCR. To make the film... Weiwei gathered a team of 200 people that filmed in 23 countries. There's Lebanon, where a third of the population are refugees. 30 million stateless Kurds. Over a million Syrians in Jordan, which would be the rough equivalent of 60 million refugees in the United States. But these are people, and not just numbers. And Weiwei lets his camera linger long on their faces, and their stories, so that it becomes impossible to turn away from our fellow human beings. In 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell, there were 11 countries in the world with border walls and fences. Today, there are 70 such countries. And the last stop in this film? The Mexican-USA border, where a Border Patrol ludicrously shows a director where he can and can't film for 30 minutes. I watch this film on Amazon Prime. Patterson The independent filmmaker, Jim Jarmusch, continues his trademark slow-moving minimalism in the story about the simple and the sacred. The movie is set in Patterson, New Jersey. Its main protagonist is a bus driver named Patterson who drives a number 23 Patterson bus. On the one hand, this film is about the sacred ordinary. The story follows one week in the life of Patterson, the bus driver. Each new day is a near-carbon copy of the day before, right down to much of the dialogue and actions. He gets up eats a bowl of Cheerios, walks to work in his blue bus uniform with his green lunch pail, then walks back home, straightens the wobbly mailbox in his weed-infested yard, eats dinner, and walks his dog Marvin to the local bar. His wife Laura sells homemade cupcakes at the farmer's market and splurges on a $200 guitar. They are unfailingly tender, polite and kind to each other. I don't think there's one moment of special effects, sex, violence, drugs, or vulgarity in this film On the other hand, you could say this film is also about the ordinary sacred, for at night, Patterson writes poetry. Throughout the film, a voiceover features his poems. We also learn that William Carlos Williams was a Patterson native, who similarly had a regular job as a physician. Patterson never speaks to his writers, but he eavesdrops on their conversations as a careful listener and keen observer of their humanity that he encounters every day. Perhaps that's because he doesn't even own a cell phone. I watched this film on Amazon streaming. Won't You Be My Neighbor This documentary movie about Fred Rogers and his television show for preschool children called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood has received uniformly rave reviews. In our age of violence and vulgarity, it is a shocking commentary on personal and civic kindness. Like many people in the theater, I just wept at times as you watch this ordained Presbyterian minister fulfilled what he understood to be a sacred calling, an otherwise media wasteland. One of Roger's sons noted that for a man who spent his whole life in television, my dad really hated most of what was on TV. He thought it was horribly degrading for children. So it was an unlikely medium for a powerful message that, as Mr. Rogers said, love is the root of everything. Margaret Whitmer, one of the producers of the show, observed how, if you take all of the elements that make good television and do the exact opposite— you have Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Low production values, simple set, an unlikely star, yet it worked. Indeed it did, and for his efforts, Rogers was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, along with numerous other awards. For books this week, Dan reviews Shoe Dog. In 1962, Phil Knight was fresh out of college at the University of Oregon and Stanford Business School, with the year of service in the Army, when well, at the age of 24, he had what he calls his crazy idea. He and Bill Bowerman, his track coach in college, ponied up $500 apiece and started Blue Ribbon Sports in order to import Japanese running shoes. It would be seven years in 1969 before he paid himself any salary. Today, Nike has revenues of $34 billion, 74,400 employees, and offices in 52 countries. With a net worth of $35 billion, Forbes lists Knight as the 28th richest person in the world. There have been numerous books about Nike, including those by former employees and a Harvard Business School case study about the company. But here, the 80-year-old founder gets to tell his own story. Learning about how a small startup of eccentric running nerds became one of the world's most powerful brands is inherently interesting. But what really makes this book hum are Knight's personal reflections. He reflects on numerous mistakes that he now regrets. He hired a spy to infiltrate his Japanese supplier. He lied to them about Blue Ribbon's non-existent factory on the East Coast, and even stole documents from them in the middle of a meeting. He repeatedly reflects on his difficult relationship with his father, who criticized him for, quote, jackassing around with shoes. He returns time and again to his failures in balancing work and family with his wife of 50 years, Penny, writing at one point that the guilt was palpable. Whereas he speaks at length about his two sons, Travis and Matthew, he never mentions that he also has a daughter, Christina. By nature, a shy and private loner, Knight admits that no employee sacrifice was too much to ask, and that in keeping with my personality I expressed no gratitude. I spoke not a word of thanks or praise. Drinking among the inner circle of early employees was a regular ritual, like the drunken bacchanal at the Honolulu Marathon. Proud to be a rule-breaking rebel, Knight can also be dismissive of us mere mortals, the petty bureaucrats and bean counters. He thought Magic Johnson would never make it in the NBA. As for the Nike he created, I also wondered about a deep contradiction. For Knight, business was always war without bullets. There were Oregonian misfits who were proud to thumb their nose at the system. More than once, he says, it was never about the money for any of us. They were a brand, a statement, and a symbol of rebellion and iconoclasm. They bragged about breaking the rules. But now you could argue the opposite, that wearing Nike signals cultural conformity. He actually hints at this when he writes that the company went from a popular accessory to a cultural artifact. My biggest disappointment with this book is that it ends in 1980 when Nike went public, the same week that a company called Apple went public. Knight was only 42 at that time. This memoir suggests that Phil Knight has more life wisdom to share I want to hear more of his reflections on his life from age 40 to 80, and I would eagerly read his next book. For Movies This Week, Dan reviews Myanmar's Killing Fields. This PBS Frontline documentary begins in the world's largest refugee camp in Bangladesh, where one million Rohingya Muslims and Hindus have fled since August of 2017. Beginning in 2012, police and military forces of the Myanmar Buddhist government began a brutal campaign against the Rohingya minority, which they consider terrorists and illegal immigrants in Bangladesh. The atrocities have included the worst sorts of human rights abuses imaginable. Torture, mass execution, gang rape, arson, infanticide, forced ghettos, checkpoints, controls of all aspects of life, like shuttered mosques, and forced registrations with the government. The document filmed these atrocities in hundreds of secret and very graphic videos that were made by small groups of citizen activists and with interviews with eyewitnesses. The United Nations, the United States, the International Criminal Court, and groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have all agreed that this has been a textbook case of ethnic cleansing, crimes against humanity, and genocide. A particular frustration has been Aung San Suu Kyi, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, former heroine of human rights and leader of the government, for her silence and passivity. She refused to allow UN fact-finders and journalists into the country, has been defensive, claimed that the accounts of atrocities are fabrications, and that she has limited control over the military. So far, no nations have sanctioned Myanmar. Warning, the videos in this film are extremely graphic. And finally, for poetry, good is the flesh, by Brian Wren Good is the flesh that the Word has become. Good is the birthing, the milk in the breast. Good is the feeding, caressing, and rest. Good is the body for knowing the world. Good is the flesh that the Word has become. Good is the body for knowing the world, sensing the sunlight, the tug of the ground, feeling, perceiving, within and around. Good is the body from cradle to grave. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body from cradle to grave, growing and aging, arousing, impaired, happy in clothing or lovingly bared. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh, longing in all as in Jesus to dwell, glad of embracing and tasting and smell. Good is the body for good and for God. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for December 30th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.